0: In this bonus episode for this Grateful Dead-centric season of the BMP Anthology podcast, I talk with Brad Serling, a deadhead who started an online site that lets fans of the dead, and dozens of other bands, listen to a huge archive of live recordings. Here I talk to Brad about the founding of Nugs.net, his own Grateful Dead fandom, and how Nugs evolved into what it is today. As you know, every purchaser of the MP Anthology, The Story of the Grateful Dead, gets a free trial of NugsNet, so consider this a primer on what to expect. All you need to do to activate is to open your purchase email to redeem your free trial. So I guess, like, to start, uh, how did NugsNet start? Like, what's the origin story of NugsNet?
1: Well, it was thirty years ago last week, actually. Wow, good timing. I, that, yeah, yeah. That I first brought a tape deck into a Grateful Dead concert. Okay. So one could say that that was the start of Nugsnet. Okay. Um Yeah, I had started seeing the dead in eighty eight, but it wasn't until the summer of ninety that I actually bought a tape deck and took it into a concert and sat in the taper section and recorded. It. And that was that was in Pittsburgh, seven eight ninety. Okay Free River Stadium. Then I went on and taped the RFK show on July twelfth, taped the Buffalo Show on July sixteenth, and then went on to Deer Creek, taped those two nights. So that was really the start, and the impetus was. I was tired of waiting around for a tape after the show. So I was like, well, (laughs) I'll just tape it myself. They have a taper section. I mean, how hard could it be? So (laughs) it was uh, a lot of learning that went on in terms of choice of mics, mic placement, you know, then eventually everything down to cabling, cassettes, all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. So the, the Reader's Digest version is I was out there taping shows starting in the summer of 90. Then by the time I got to college and graduated college, I... Called up the Grateful Dead by this point, it was like spring of 94. And I said, Can I put, well, actually, if <laughs> we really want to take a step back, I, spring of 94, I was graduating Cornell, wasn't sure what I was going to do, didn't really want to go to law school like my parents expected. Mm-hmm. So I wrote Dick, Dick Lodval a letter and said I wanted to come and intern for him for the summer you know i said Mm -hmm. i would empty the trash make him a tuna fish sandwich whatever it would take (laughs) and he wrote me back a very nice letter handwritten letter that said you know thank you very much for your interest as you can imagine we're kind of a family affair over here and you know i wish you best of luck and thanks for reaching out but you know thanks but no thanks Mm -hmm. so well i tried so later that fall um i was in my first real job working for adam curry who was the, the vj who famously quit mtv on air he was the the He was the VJ with the the flock of seagulls hair. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh Um, He quit MTV on the air and started a company called OnRamp, which was the first web shop. And I was his first employee. So, uh, you know, I was a month into the job. My first gig with him was was actually the dead were playing Giants Stadium that summer. And I interviewed with him that day and then went out to see the dead at Giants that evening and um, that was really the start of, of all this. So my he hired me on the spot. My first gig with him was building Woodstock.com for the, the Woodstock 94 Festival. Okay. That's how I started professionally. And then about a month after working for him, I got a hold of, uh, for some reason, somebody that we were working with had the business card for Patty Harris, who ran Grateful Dead Merchandising. So I called her up and said, I wanted to put my tapes on a website. And was that okay? And she said, what's a website? Do whatever you want, just don't rip us off. You know, dead.net didn't exist yet at that point. This was August or September 94. So that was really the the genesis. Then um, over the years, I started putting my tapes on various different sites. And by the summer of 97, I actually registered the domain nugs.net. So I had been putting my tapes online starting in 94. First, it was on the there was a a Berkeley uh, FTP site gdad.berkeley.edu that people could publicly put whatever grateful that mm-hmm. related on there so i would put little clips of my tapes that was the initial thought was let me put up samples of my tapes so that you know when you're training tapes by mail there were no surprises you would know what you were getting because people could hear the samples of my tapes so i could hear the samples of their, their tapes that was the initial idea because it wasn't really feasible to put up a full show back then right but then as mp3s became more popular and you know professionally we you know when I was working for Adam Curry, we actually built one of the first sites that used MP2, MPEG2. It was a <laughs> site for Ber- Bertelsmann Classical, BMGClassical.com. Sure, So we were hosting full, you know, orchestral pieces in MPEG2. Then we were one of the first to use Real Audio, which was called Progressive Networks, and then became Real Networks. And so we were doing streaming audio back in '94, mm-hmm. and I would put up. you know, of course, once I got the technology in my hands, the first thing I wanted to do was put my dead tapes into that format and let people stream it or download it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was doing for fun. While my real job was I built the first NFL website. I built the first Budweiser.com. Wow. I built the first, um, you know, we did something with Major League Baseball. We did something with um, Reebok.com or the first Reebok.com. And those companies, Anheuser-Busch and Reebok, they would fly me around the country going to their events to do what we called cybercasts. So we were streaming. Usually it was like Budweiser would send me to a NASCAR race and I would interview the drivers in a live chat room and we would do use these little CUC me cams to do like five frames a second black and white live video. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, you know, that was in the mid-90s. So miraculously, those trips that Anheuser-Busch or Reebok were funding would completely align up with fish tour <laughs> and I would get uh Anheuser-Busch to pay for me to go. And I was living in New York at the time. They would pay for me to go to Denver and Portland and the gorge. And somehow it just all worked out that it was all in the same travel budget, same in the same flight. And even down to the DAT deck that I then upgraded to from my original analog deck, it was all paid for by, Anheuser-Busch or paid for by Reebok or paid for by the Major League Baseball Players Association um, because I would go out and I did uh, like 12 World Series games and a couple All-Star games, uh, a bunch of playoff games, and we would be streaming from the clubhouse or from you know the Yankees clubhouse or the interview room after the game. So I had all this gear at my disposal. I had the know-how at my, dis- uh, you know, at my fingertips, and then I would go see Fish and tape the show and then post the show on Nugs.net. So that, that's how it all started.
0: Yeah. So what, I mean, how did you get into the dead to the point where you, I mean, you said you got sick of waiting, <laughs> waiting for the tape from the shows you were going to. So you decided to tape your own, but like. That's
1: exactly how, why I started.
0: That. Right. So like, let's take a step back from there. Like, where did your dead fandom start? Cause like. You, you obviously well, had, like, more yeah. investment than, like, a, a normal person who's just, like, you know, going to the shows, I guess. Like, you, you actually well, yeah, went people, above and beyond and started taping them. But people like, thought I was
1: insane in high school, and then by the time I got to college <laughs> I lugged all those tapes to college. Like, it was funny. I watched this past Friday when John Mayer did the intro thing to the, the, the Dead Shakedown stream. Mm-hmm. He, he purposely set up his little Zoom cam in front of a wall full of cassettes that was me in college and mm-hmm. people thought I was insane. They'd come into my dorm room freshman year and it was like wall to wall dead tapes, literally. And, um, yeah, so I was, I was the kid who had the crazy dead tape collection and mm-hmm. then I'd come back from tour with even more tapes. And I was like, oh, there has got to be a better way to share these tapes. It was so, so cumbersome to copy all these tapes for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're saying, how did I get into the dead initially? It was because, um, you know, really, right time, right place. The era that I grew up was when the compact disc first became popular. Mm-hmm. So all of you know the crown jewels of classic rock were being reissued on compact discs for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so my best friend, who is still my best friend and is my partner in Nugsnet, John Richter, he, his dad was a big audiophile, still is, and. um, I don't know why or how, but John always seemed to have an unlimited budget to purchase CDs. Okay. So he would take all his allowance and all his money and go to the local record shop and basically get an education on what to buy, everything from what album to buy to what version of the CD to buy. So I was lucky as his best friend to be able to go and listen to all these. So that that's how I learned, that's how I first discovered The Grateful Dead. Although, interestingly, when I think back, because this anniversary of Working Me Instead that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. The first two CDs I ever bought were actually for, on behalf of my sister. My sister had gotten a CD player for her bat mitzvah, and she got a, you know had a CD player before I did. She's mm-hmm. four years older than me. So the first CDs I ever remember going to the store buying, not the first albums I ever bought, but the first time I actually went to a record store and bought CDs, mm-hmm. she wanted me to get Bon Jovi Slippery When Wet and something by The Grateful Dead. Okay. So it was interesting, and that's just a nice snapshot in time. Uh-huh. That was the, like the summer of 87. Sure. So Slippery When Wet, or maybe it was 86, I can So it was like I so I go into Wall to Wall Sound and I buy Slippery When Wet and uh, Working Man's Dead. So that was the first memory I have of buying a Grateful Dead album. Meanwhile, my my friend and now partner John had you know, he already had this whole collection. He had he just gotten Working Man's, or he just gotten American Beauty. And he famously said, or I never, never let him forget that he said this, but we were listening to American beauty one night and he's like, they're just CSN wannabes, which oh. is very perceptive, that, very perceptive that he said that he didn't know, like what we now know that, right. no, they actually were CSN wannabes, like mm-hmm. Crosby and that, like they trained them on how to sing like that and stack their vocals. And it worked out most beautifully on American beauty, but it was yeah, interesting in hindsight that mm-hmm. John was very perceptive saying that, because that is exactly what they were trying to be. <laughs>
0: right. Video.
1: Yeah. And it was not, it was, that was not a bad, that was, they would have taken that as a compliment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's how I got into it. It was basically we, John was out there buying, you know, the whole Beatles catalog had just been mm-hmm. reissued and, you know, everything from The Stones to The Who to, you know, Little Feet to, you know, everything else was coming out on CD and John would buy it all voraciously and we would go back to his house and listen to it all. That's what we did every day after school. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got exposed to The Grateful Dead. And then that just happened to coincide with the summer of 87. When all of a sudden, you know, Grateful Dead have a top 10 hit for the first time ever.
0: Right. Um,
1: Every girl in my high school who, you know, the year before might have been wearing Benetton sweaters and guest jeans traded that in for tie dyes and Birkenstocks by the fall of 87. (laughs) It was just like this sea change that hit suburban America because the Grateful Dead were on MTV. We were already listening to Grateful Dead at that point. But then to see culturally that there was this Mm -hmm. seismic shift among the contemporaries in my high school class that, which was funny because back then, I'll, and let's just take it back to the social thing. A lot of the girls who had never given me the time of day all of a sudden thought I was cool because I had this great tape collection. <laughs> so, you know, I immediately saw the advantages there to being knowledgeable and good and grateful to and having a great tape collection, which certainly paid off in droves when I got to college. Even more so now, thirty years later. I mean, look at my whole life. Is <laughs> I'm still now doing exactly what I was doing when I was 15. So it's, right. Yeah. And so you saw the
0: Dead. You said in '88 or '88 88
1: was my first show. Okay. Uh, and so 9, what was it, it,
0: what was it like to see them in that era? You know, like it was they were obviously like playing like football stadiums then, right? Like yeah. My were, first show
1: was the Spectrum, which okay. was you know they played at 50 some shows there um but then yeah you know, they also play i happened to miss the show they played at jfk stadium um which was the same place live aid was held i missed that one because i was living in london that summer but the but i went on to see them i don't think no they never played vet stadium in philly but i saw them at um you know rfk stadium rich stadium so yeah i saw them at the massive stadium level mm-hmm. um but the first time i saw him was at the spectrum which was relatively intimate right uh, and just a great place to see the grateful dead i mean the it ended up being the the first place they played Unbroken Chain. Um, you know, they played Lucy and the Sky with Diamonds there. I mean, just so many great dead shows, always a shakedown through the spectrum. But my first show was it was a very cliche moment in the middle of the second set when they're playing trucking, the lights come up on the crowd. You know, lately it occurs to me and the, the whole thing. It just mm-hmm. I got chills, goosebumps, and I just knew, okay, this is a moment in time. This is a very fragile thing. Mm-hmm. And this is gonna go away. I better see this as often as I can before it goes away. I don't know why that's what I thought, but that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. And you know, it might have been because the year before I had gone to this, um, uh, there was a 60s symposium at the University of Pennsylvania. And you know, part of my high school class, we a group of us went to it, and you know, there's Betty Friedan, there's Joel Robertson, John Roseman from Woodstock, there's um and Timothy Leary was there
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I, you know, young impressionable 15 year old me goes and interviews Timothy Leary and says, you know, I said, you know, when you're, you're famous for saying to an intern on dropout, what, you know, how do you feel today? And I think it was 86 at that point. What do you still have that same advice? He said, well, I do the drugs I need to do to get me where I need to go.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> Which is not something you tell a 15 year old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: First thing I had ever taped before taping the Grateful Dead was taping Timothy Leary say that to me. Uh So that that um, maybe that's why it clicked for me a year later or two years later when I saw the Dead for the first time. It was like I had this interest in in the '60s and pop culture. You know, not not just the drugs and all that stuff, but like the social movement that, like, what happened after World War II, the the next generation. You know, whether it was the protests in Vietnam or Mm. you know the widespread use of psychedelics or birth control or whatever it was that was changing society so rapidly back then why did that happen and why were we all of a sudden celebrating that 20 years later when i was a kid i was fascinated by that mm-hmm. so that's why i think i latched onto the grateful Dead. it was as jerry famously said if you were a kid growing up in reagan america it was the last great adventure you could have as an american teenager you know like for kerouac it was going on the road and kerouac and uh, inspired uh, certainly Jerry and, and, you know, they never considered themselves hippies. They considered themselves beatniks. Mm-hmm. They were inspired to go on the road. Jerry went all the way. out, drove across from California to Pennsylvania to go see Bill Monroe and follow him around with a reel to reel tape deck. And guess what he did? He was trading tapes in the parking lot. And that's how I met David Grisman. It's fascinating. Jerry was out there doing what we were doing, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I somehow latched onto that and saw the importance of that. And every single thing that I do today professionally and in my personal life is still based on that same inspiration.
0: Right. And so how many how many Grateful Dead shows did you end up seeing? Do you know the number?
1: I saw them 135 times between 88 and when Jerry died in, in 95.
0: 95.
1: Wow. Now, to be fair, growing up as a kid in New England and going, you know, I grew up in Philly, uh-huh. had family in New York City, went to school at Cornell in Ithaca, New York, the Dead were playing six nights in a row at MSG, nine nights at MSG, nine nights at Boston Garden, four nights at the Spectrum, four nights at the Capitol Theater or Capitol Center in in D.C. It was very easy to rack up a lot. I mean, it still took a lot of effort, but, um, you know, in it, they were so focused on servicing the New England fan base that mm-hmm. I was able to see a lot more shows in that time that my counterparts in the Bay Area were not able to see. Yeah, because mm-hmm. they they play the token shows every year at, at, in Oakland and at Shoreline and everything, but it right. wasn't like the concentrated, blanketing of the Northeast that the Grateful Dead did between yeah you know, the late '80s and and the time Jerry died.
0: Right. So from then, from you, you know, in the the mid '90s, uh, you know, really like posting fish shows and that kind of thing. Like, uh, how did NugsNet sort of grow into now, where it's this like. You know, there's so many different bands on there. It's like this huge, you know, it's like the, the premier, like concert website in a lot of ways. Like, how do you get from, you know, dead and fish shows to the version it is now?
1: Well, like Bill Graham famously said, it's not about the money. It's about the money. (laughs) So, So bands that are not jam bands see dollar signs when they see, and I really, interestingly to put it in context. I don't think the rest of the music industry took Fish seriously until the Baker's Dozen. Okay. Um, then all of a sudden everybody was talking about Fish and seeing that they were actually a legitimate business. Mm-hmm. So, I you know, I think in my opinion and I see this day to day no matter what manager of what band I'm speaking to, they all see dollar signs in what Fish is doing and wish that they could do that too. -hmm. And there's bands that are way more popular than Fish in terms of global reach, album sales, ticket sales, but none of them has what Fish has, and what Fish has is what the Grateful Dead had. And I'm not saying drawing musical comparisons. I just mean Mm -hmm. the ethos and the way that they approach a live performance and the way that they treat their fans. Metallica is very close in the way that they treat their fans, but Metallica doesn't mix up the show that much. Right. So the, you know, and I I had I've had this conversation repeatedly with Lars saying that you know. Metallica can't support the type of business that Fish does in terms of online subscription, streaming, pay-per-view because mm-hmm. the show is not different enough. Right, And it was, you know, and Metallica in their own rehearsal space, which we happened to have been streaming live at the time they said this, but it was like the week after the Baker's Dozen ended, you just randomly I was up there in Edmonton the last night of the show and we were streaming the show live and we were streaming the band from their performance, you know, they called it the, um, it was the Shit, now I forget what they call it. They have a name for the rehearsal space. Mm-hmm. We were streaming it live before before they walked on stage. And I think it was Kirk who said, Hey, we sounded like Fish for a minute there for some jam they were just playing. And then James said to the rest of the band, hey, Did you guys hear what, what Fish just did at the garden? They played 13 nights and didn't repeat a song. And and they were like, Well, wait a minute, let me get this straight. They played 13 nights at MSG and did not repeat a, one song. That would be a fucking nightmare for us. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no way that Metallica could pull that on, off. Right. Or they just wouldn't want to put in the effort. But not only that, their fans would riot if they didn't play Enter Salmon or Master of Puppets. <laughs> right, yeah. you're ch- paying you know,
0: for MSG tickets. It's not feasible. Want, yeah. he,
1: mm-hmm. Even Bruce Springsteen, who mixes up the show tremendously, if he doesn't play Dance in the Dark and Born to Run, you know, people would feel like they didn't get their money's worth. Right. Or, you know, um, Don Henley famously said he wished that even though he was not a fan of the Grateful Dead, he wished he had that freedom because if they didn't play Hotel California every night and play that guitar solo exactly the way it was on the record, fans would feel like they were gypped. But the Grateful Dead could walk on stage and take a shit and nobody would <laughs> they would still be happy to be there.
0: Right. You know? Yeah. Cause you'd be at the famous show where Jerry took a shit. Right. right like, exactly.
1: yeah. Or yeah. like uh like that reporter said, I think it was at Deer Creek uh, it's summer ninety six or ninety seven. Fish can piss in the ears of their listeners and the fans would lap it up. <laughs> it's just, it's about the experience. It's not about hearing the hits. Not that mm-hmm. Fish or Grateful Dead. I mean, Grateful Dead actually had a hit, but right. it, uh, that's not what it's about. It's about the mm-hmm. experience. And so fans subscribe to their experience. I guess that's a long winded way of answering your question. The way that NugsNet grew is because bands like Grateful Dead and Fish prove that there's a business there and there's gold in them, their hills.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, that's
1: the, the mining of the archive. That's where the name Nugs.net comes from. It's a network of nuggets. I'm going into the archive, digging out a nugget and putting it on the network. Mm-hmm. So, nugget.net is just a play on words, the network of nuggets. So, there's a whole business case to be made that there's a tremendous business in exploiting the archives of iconic rock and roll bands. And, you know, frankly, that is my business. And that's, you know, 25 years from now, what I hope to be known for is. The trusted curator of these bands' legacies. And I'm mm-hmm. incredibly humbled and honored that I get to do that for the Bruce Springsteen archives, that I get to do that with Fish, that I get to do that with the Grateful Dead, not to mention all these other bands, even bands that I might not have ever been into in high school, like Metallica, for example. But mm-hmm. Metallica is essentially the Grateful Dead of metal. You know, right. and I don't mean that musically, I mean, they were a pioneering band that defined a genre. Um, you know, they're an iconic brand and they treat their fans right. And they allow taping. Right. The fact that we've, you know, Metallica was the next big act that we signed after fish. In fact, when I went in to Electra with fish to get permission to do live fish back in 2002, they didn't say yes or no. They said, could you build us a NugsNet for Metallica? That's how I signed Metallica. Okay. So that's how NugsNet grew. Mm-hmm. from just fish and the dead to fish dead metallica bruce springsteen pearl jam red Hot Chili peppers you know we worked with zach brown band for a while we'd done you know we're now doing jack white and all his iterations of bands and mm-hmm. third band and white stripes and all that um wilco you know my morning jacket we've we've branched out but still the focus is on live